You're listening to episode 394 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Venneroff. Hello, Max. Looks like we have oh, a little bit of an apology for every to everybody because we're going to be posting this a day late due to me not feeling well last night, but I appreciate having the extra day. It almost turned into two days late because I fell asleep until a few minutes ago. So uh, I, I guess we're both ready to do this, David. Yeah, well, let's, let's get this over with so we can both go back to bed. Our first story comes from DroneDJ.com. Southern Cal Gas to deploy Dusin hydrogen drones in pipeline inspections. Now, we know Max likes hydrogen fuel cells, so this, is, this was a story for him. At this year's CES, Southern California Gas Company announced a partnership with DMI Innovation and GTI to launch hydrogen drone demonstrations. So they're going to be talking about their DS-30 drone system. Right. It's an octocopper. <laughs> an octocopper. <laughs> and it uses a DMI hydrogen fuel cell power pack. And they say the DS-30 can monitor a one-mile-long pipeline in a single flight. That kind of struck me as as being a shorter distance than I would have thought for a two-hour flight. I guess... Pipeline inspection happens more slowly than I thought. I was kind of envisioning sort of you know a, a quick flyby down you know down the pipeline. Well, I mean if you're if you're looking for the minutest little cracks, I think you probably do need to go slow, two miles an hour or a mile a mile in two hours. So I don't know what that would be. Um, like a half a mile an hour. A half a mile an hour to do probably a. a inspection well max you got to look at it this way if you're going to do a pipeline inspection you probably have to look at the top and the sides so it's probably a half mile down and a half mile back and i guess they're going to be using this drone to uh, to capture imagery for aerial mapping and they're also going to develop some three-dimensional topographic models so yeah i guess now that i think about it that that doesn't happen really really super quickly but they plan to use this for not only doing uh, videos of pipeline routes, but also at construction sites and open trenches, working conditions, things like this. So I guess it's more than just the pipeline itself, but it's sort of the whole um, area around it. Though I did find it amusing that they were using hydrogen fuel cells to do gas pipelines. You know, dude, you know like, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> uh, just, I, I did find that amusing. But so um, DMI offers fuel cell power packs, a range of drones and hydrogen tanks. The lightweight fuel packs can be mounted to various drones. Energy density, four to five times lithium ion batteries. And their fuel cells have a lifespan of a thousand hours. That's pretty comprehensive on, on where the fuel cell cell technology is but again you run out of you run out of hydrogen after a mile or two hours and david what you said about the uh, power packs is kind of a key to what dmi is all about uh, it's these fuel cell power packs that are are designed to be mounted as you said on a variety of different different drones so it's not it's not just an integrated um, solution 
with a hydrogen fuel cell in a specific drone, but it is, as they say, it's a power pack that can be used in, in different applications. So I think that's kind of interesting. And also, it's worth noting, I think, that SoCal Gas is looking to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. It's a, it's a big objective for uh, SoCal Gas. And th- this is kind of part of it, using hydrogen-powered drones to do these inspections rather than, you know, manual or using other means that would result in burning fossil fuels to conduct the inspections and so forth. So it, it fits in with their strategy. And that leads for a really good segue into our next story from UAS Weekly. Zero CO2 emissions drone delivery with SkyDrones technology. So zero CO2 emissions and carbon neutral um, or whatever the terms you want to use is a big deal. And um, drones seem to be at the forefront of it. And this is a partnership again. We're seeing many, many partnerships come up in this space. In fact, we've got another one coming up uh, in just a minute. So, so Max, remember when you forgot to tell, ask me about what my prediction is for the, for the year of 2022? That's right. I think it's going to be all sorts of combinations of organizations working together to make a perfect drone union. I think that's a good uh, projection. So here we see Sky Drones Technologies and F-Drones. Now, F-Drones is a company that focuses on deliveries, maritime deliveries, deliveries between shore ships and offshore platforms, things like that. And they use electric autonomous uh, VTOLs. Uh, There are two that they uh, produce, the Hypercopter and the Hyperlaunch. They both can carry payloads of about five kilograms, where the Hypercopter has a range of 30 miles, uh, sorry, 30 kilometers, and the Hyperlaunch has a longer range of 50 kilometers. But they're also going beyond that. F-Drones is looking to develop what they call the Hyper Launch Heavy, or the HLH. And there they hope to develop a drone that can carry 100 kilograms over 100 kilometers. The other part of this synergy is Sky Drones Technologies, who offer hardware and software. They're for flight control and ground control communication systems and cloud-based management platforms. So you have F-Drones making the hardware, in this, the, in this case, the eVirtals, and then you've got the software and the management system from SkyDrones. Right. Their mission computer they call AirLink AI, um, which uh, includes an autopilot and also LTE connectivity. And they're also using a product they call the Smart App GCS, which is mission planning and flight control software. So with the technology, with this, with the SkyDrones technology, F-Drones can relay, record, and replay live footage from their VTOLs. So it's definitely um, a synergistic program, and we'll see if it's expandable. If, if F-Drones gets their 100 kilogram by 100 kilometer drone up there, um, that would be significant. And the management system underneath, again, we're talking about infrastructure, not just the um, actual delivery, but the whole infrastructure involved with delivery. And we have a short video that we'll put in the show notes. It uh, shows how the AirLink, the Smart AP AirLink, uh, is manufactured. So it's, it's not a video of the drone 
um, but just how this uh, piece of electronics is is manufactured. And if you're not familiar with you know manufacturing ele- uh, electronic components, it's uh, it, it's kind of uh, illuminating to see how much uh, manufacturing technology goes into just building uh, these units. So you can uh, find that in the show notes. Scientists design lithium air batteries for commercial use in EVs and drones. Normally, we're talking about when we say lithium batteries, we're talking about lithium ions. But here we're talking about lithium air. It's a power plant packed episode in this episode. Um, So, Max, lithium air, what is it? Well, it it means similar in concept, but uh, it has or it has the prospect for a greater energy density than lithium ion. Um, they hope to be able to develop uh, two to five times the energy density of lithium ion. And I mean, this is something that's been in development. Uh, the uh, article notes that a lot of the analysis or assessment of uh, how well these things operate uh, is looking at sort of the individual components, the efficiencies of the individual components of the lithium air battery and not at the overall operation of these batteries in real world applications. So uh, it's not something that's here now. It's not something that's really that uh, that far in development that we have some good solid ideas of, I think, of when these things might be available and just what the advantages may be. But, you know, we talk about energy density and the, you know, the need to increase the the capability of batteries and maybe we need some kind of a, you know, step change in technology that brings us up to much higher uh, energy levels. And I don't know, maybe this lithium air concept is something that falls into that category. Well, let's hope that it's not a lot of hot air and it actually (laughs) becomes successful. Yeah. The next one is not a political statement, but just a statement of fact. And it is, um, a shadow drone force keeps attacking U.S. troops. And this is from taskandpurpose.com. American troops in Iraq have been attacked with drones three times this year already. Um, all the drones were shot down near Baghdad Airport and an airbase and five drones in total. And they're really not quite sure where these drones are coming from, but they're sort of becoming, I, I would say, nuisance attacks. And it's not just um, these troops in Iraq that have been suffering under, under these drone, attra- uh, drone attacks. There were some U.S. troops last year in October and December in Syria uh, that came under attack by some of these small drones. Uh, we know ISIS used off-the-shelf star, uh, store-bought drones, um, used those to drop mortar rounds on Iraqi troops. And we've seen others uh, examples as well. Remember the assassination attempts in Iraq and Venezuela. Uh, there's some other examples of this as well. So we're we're kind of seeing you know more and more use of uh, simple, relatively simple, small drones uh, in in military conflicts and even assassination attempts. And not just military small drones, but off-the-shelf drones being improvised into into improvised. Uh, unmanned vehicles or kamikaze drones. So it's causing the U.S. military to think about counter UAS even more so than they have been. So, I mean, and miniaturizing counter UAS 
to combat these kind of these kind of attacks. Right. And we we speculated about this sort of thing happening several years ago as as I recall and it, it's come to pass and uh, you know as uh, you know, frequently happens in these kind of situations and you know as you suggest David when some new technology comes out um, that can be used in conflicts and counter technology comes along too to to try to handle it and it's uh, the classic cat and mouse game are you saying that because Emily is trying to claw her way into my lap as long as she doesn't have a mouse with her. Yeah, that's right. So, Max, I thought this was kind of interesting. Again, we're, we're talking about school boards, in this case, reaching um, a policy about drones flying over school property. The Wilkes, North Carolina School Board has a policy for drones over school property. Question, do they have that authority? Answer, in my opinion, no, they don't, but that doesn't stop them from from trying them. And so this policy, it applies to anyone who isn't a representative of the Wilkes schools. So school employees or people associated with it have some different rules. And it also, it applies to anybody that wants to fly over property that's owned, leased, or somehow controlled by the Wilkes schools. And the policy has some has a pretty comprehensive list of requirements. Yeah, uh, they want a, wrist, a, a written request for permission submitted to the superintendent or his designee at least three days in advance and must include the names and contact information of anyone connected with the flight, proof of insurance coverage, proof of any required FAA permits, proof of any required North Carolina Department of Transportation permits, and a detailed flight plan with specific times and locations. That's all really nice, but I don't think anyone's really required to do that. Nope, I don't think so either, because a local organization doesn't regulate the airspace. Now, they could uh, establish policies for launches from school property, let's say, uh, because that they can control is my understanding, but not the airspace. But I don't know. You, you would think that by now there would be, you know, when this comes up in some uh, in some local area, which seems to happen quite frequently, that there would be somebody in that area that would know uh, enough to uh, provide them with the information they need to understand what they can do and what they can't do. But it, it doesn't happen. No, it really doesn't. Um it does show the kind of micromanagement that's occurring or um, micro-regulation that some of these places are looking to do. We talked originally about states, and now we've talked about counties. And we have a school board. I mean, it doesn't get any more, you know, all politics is local, quote-unquote, but it doesn't get much local than your your school board, your elected school board. So... What I was curious about was what prompted this to begin with. Something like this doesn't occur just because they didn't have anything to discuss in the school board that they decided, oh, let's go after drones. So I, I do question what was what prompted this um, organization to feel the need to do this. Yeah, there must have been something. There, 
there must have been some kind of event, like you say, that uh, that sparked this, that motivated this. And, you know, while I might be critical of their authority to do this, uh, I don't doubt that they are, you know, uh, well-intentioned in in creating something like this. Uh, it, but it's just the lack of, of good knowledge. Of understanding. Yeah, I mean, so you need people like us to educate them. Or are you listening? So when you you know when you encounter something like this, uh, speak up, contribute. I do that. I do that a lot actually. When I see stories like this, I uh, contact the mayor or the the local uh, authorities, the local uh, government to try to point something out. It, I, I can't say that it's been particularly effective because usually we find out about these things after they've already been enacted. Uh, but uh, if uh, you know in your local area, if you run across a group, the the government, uh, in this case, a school board, that's uh, trying to overstep their authority, have a conversation with them. I think that'd be useful. Yeah, absolutely. That goes for not only for drones, but, you know, like all politics is local and there is nothing more important than participating in your local government because that's the one that really, truly affects you. So, right. Um, Okay, let's talk about UPS. I mean, UPS. This is from DroneDJ.com. UPS unlikely to reverse use of drones in deliveries despite CEO's quasi-meh assessment. (laughs) I I thought quasi-meh was was a pretty good headline. I I want to use that. Somebody asked me how I feel. I'm going to say, yeah, (laughs) quasi-meh. Yeah, I haven't seen that in the headline. So the UPS CEO, Carol Tomei, spoke at an American Chamber of Commerce event, and her comments are kind of what sparked this. And she said, you can't fly drones when it's windy. You can't fly them when it's rainy. There are lots of issues with drones. So the article says, in effect, is speculating, is UPS trying to tone down expectations for what they may do? Uh, Under previous UPS CEO David Abney, UPS tested drone delivery systems, developed in-house delivery capabilities, created UPS Flight Forward subsidiary, the first company to receive FAA authorization to operate drone delivery online. Um, The article implies that this is more a matter of UPS recalibrating than repudiating the use of UASs or drones. Yeah. Um, I, I, guess, I guess lowering expectations is probably always a good thing because then it's easier to exceed expectations. And the points that the CEO raises, I mean, are completely valid. Windy condition, bad weather it makes it difficult to fly a drone. Now, Bad weather can obviously affect surface deliveries by truck, right? UPS trucks can have problems if it's snowy or icy or something like that. Uh, But they're, I would say, much more tolerant of bad weather than a drone flying. So, you know, to what extent can you base an entire delivery strategy on drones, on something that's so subject to disruption by the by the weather, yeah. I mean, no, 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 you you really can't, unless we see in the future drones that are much more weather tolerant. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's 
time will come. And, and I think, Max, that we've come to realize we, we've come to realize expectations. You know, Amazon coming out with the original drone delivery and what you know that has fallen a lot by the wayside. While the potential was there, it's taken a lot longer to get over the hurdles, whether they be administrative or they be legal or they be technical. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's just when you don't know what you don't know, sometimes it's kind of painful when you do find out, you know, it's so it's, I think that's where we are. And I think there was a lot of overblown hype um, that fed on each other. And now it's sort of simmering to more realistic expectations. Yeah, the realities. You know, fog is another uh, aspect of weather that can impact drone flights. Yeah, but we've got a story that'll fix that. Wait, what? NASA's flying drones in dense fog? NASA's flying drones in the fog because AAM, or Advanced Air Mobility Aircraft, will need to fly in the fog. You know, it seems pretty obvious when you say it that way, but I don't think people realize that, you know, NASA still does these kind of tests besides putting people in orbit. They do, and NASA has been uh, testing some things uh, with fog at a facility in New Mexico. It's a special 180-foot-long fog chamber. That must be kind of interesting to uh, to see operate. Uh, I, it's fog. How are you going to see it operate? <laughs> well, I mean, to, you have to make all the fog. You have to make a 180-foot-long chamber of fog. fog? Bank? A fog. Let me tell you about my father making smoke in the Pacific in World War II. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not as hard as you think. So what they do is they put uh, the same kind of sensors that we would see in AAM, Advanced Air Mobility, Urban Air Mobility, pick your term. So they install those types of sensors um, at one end of this fog chamber. And it's things like optical sensors, infrared cameras, radar and LIDAR, all the kinds of sensing that we would expect to see utilized on aircraft of this type. And then they, they put a, a test target that's a drone at the other end of the chamber. And they observe what happens with different sensors based on different levels of fog. You know, and they could have gone to San Francisco and it would have been cheaper. Um, <laughs> don't need a chamber. <laughs> you don't need a chamber. Um, or should we, I guess we could say it was, or they could go to London. It would be a foggy day in London town. But I mean, but yeah, I mean, Max, this is, seems glaringly obvious, but I mean, especially eVertol coming up, those kind of sensors are going to be important to be able to cut through the clouds and cut through the, the fog to make safe approaches. You know, anybody who's driven a car knows it's much better in fog with the person has their lights on, you know, so you can see them from behind than if they don't. So to be able to see either physically or virtually via a sensor is vitally important. And fog has a way of diffracting all of that such stuff. So it's very important. And again, this is another one of those, you know, wait. What about dot, 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 you know, insert your favorite impediment 
to drone deliveries, to urban air mobility, to you know any of all any of those sorts of things. And you know, while, while we sort of or some people had sort of been expecting that we would you know see all this stuff uh, by now, if not years ago, yet here we are with something as as basic as uh, are the mission critical sensors capable of operating in something as simple as a foggy environment and we don't have that study yet and so it it, it kind of it kind of pushes out the operation of these things i don't know how far into the future but it's not going to be next year yeah it's one of those the answer to a question tends to bring on 10 or 15 more questions so but NASA's been pretty steady on on progress on these things but it's another one of those aspects that NASA is probably quietly working on, and they definitely have been in the forefront of urban air mobility. So your your taxpaying dollars are getting well used because this is being done publicly, and like all of this kind of NASA data, it gets disseminated out to the general public. So it's your definitely your tax dollars at work and beneficial beneficial to everyone, not just the federal government. It's beneficial to all of the um, people who are in this industry. Yeah. And the sensor uh, researchers and manufacturers are going to be very interested in studies like this one. So Max, the next story is yours. It's not often that I get a text message from my co-host saying that he is absolutely enamored with a story. And it's because when I saw this, I don't know, I thought of you immediately, David. So I'm not going to read the headline because it kind of gives it away. So it's a story about little Millie, a little dog that likes to wander off. And she did that, but they found her out on some mud flats and the tide was coming in. Now, mind you, this was Great Britain. That's right. And little Millie was in trouble. And nobody could coax her to, uh, to safety. The police were there, firefighters, even the Coast Guard. So somebody had an idea, which was cook up some sausage, dangle it from a drone, and get Millie to follow it off the flats. How brilliant is that? Well, it could have been, if it, was a, it would have worked better if it was a cat and fish. But, yeah. but importantly, Millie took the bait and came off the mud flats. So uh, clearly, um, I'm sure that my buddy Bean, who's sitting here next to me, probably would have followed him too. We discovered the, last night that he opened up a bag of butterscotch crimpets that were in my lunch bag. He discovered them and tore into them and ate all of them. Luckily, he's fine. But I, I could understand the whole. I can understand Millie going after the sausages miraculously flying from the heavens. And then the second part of the story, though, is that when Millie came off the flats, um, and I guess probably enjoying her sausage, uh, she ran off again, but this time in the other direction, inland. And they did ultimately find her again, reunited Millie with her owner, who said, relief just poured over me. It was just absolutely fantastic to have her home. He said, Millie really likes food and she'll eat anything you give her, raw carrots, cucumber, but she much prefers sausages. 
Meat is her favorite food, so dangling a sausage was probably the best thing they could lure her with. So I think that's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a happy ending story for sure. And what's kind of neat is evidently the sausage was a big enough diversion not to have the drone scare Millie. So clearly um, my my pup has been accused of being very food motivated. Evidently Millie's very similar. <laughs> The power of sausage. So with that, I guess, Max, we should... Oh, no, I forgot. We have some feedback. This was from Rick. Rick sent us an email saying, quote, quote, Hello, Max and David. Always enjoy your show and watch the video of the coyote drone strike. I don't know about you guys, but I would describe the strike footage as a flak attack or depth charge. Same principle, different medium. I am sure Raytheon has a HIP 2022 label for this event, but I suspect 8th Air Force guys know exactly what's involved here. Thanks again. All the best, Rick. He's got a good point. Flak is a pretty good term for what they're doing. Yeah, and as you recall from the uh, from the episode, this was the, uh, the Coyote missile slash drone uh, fired up against a... a uh, Other drones. Right, another drone, and uh, exploding in a way that kind of showered the target drone uh, with shrapnel or explosive. And it does, yeah, it does look like a, <laughs> a flak attack or a depth charge. Which is basically an explosion in the proximity of the vehicle you're trying to explode. So there's quite a few examples of this kind of um, remote sensing explosive to take out a target so but yeah rick we we definitely appreciate your feedback um and we always appreciate feedback and you can do that of course by sending us an email to feedback at the uavdigest.com and max and i will if we don't answer to it we'll talk about it on the show um and we definitely appreciate always hearing from our listeners and of course you can find us at the uav digest Dot com. We have show notes for this and every episode, including links to all of the stories that we talk about, and quite oftentimes some videos associated with those stories. So check out the show notes. And of course, you can always check us out during the week if you don't get enough of us, which is you can do that by going to our Slack listener team. Again, that's invitation only, a very exclusive club. And you can do that by sending us an email to feedback at the uavdigest.com. And Max and I will send you a link so you can join the fun in the conversation, talking about everything from drones to automotive racing. There's a little bit for everybody in there. Yes, there is. And it's a nice, safe environment. Uh, we've mentioned this before, but yeah, you can sort of think of it as sort of like a Twitter-like uh, space, uh, but with more capability. But the important part, as David said, it being a, a by-invitation space. So we have folks from this podcast, the UAV Digest, and also from the Airplane Geeks podcast. Um, and it's it's a bunch of friends communicating in a kind of a nice, safe environment. So we encourage you to check that out if you're not in our Slack team already. So I guess, Max, we should wrap this up um, so we can both go to bed. Yeah. So I'm going to say thank you for listening. And this is David. And this is Max. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>